how did you convince your wife, hey, this is a great idea, or, or did you just, you felt like you had no other option? I mean, take me through the thought process. I mean, I guess that job was just that bad for you. Yeah, I guess you're what some people call unemployable. <laughs> I, I've, I've always uh, been, been willing to take on certain types of risk, and, and, and I've always bet on myself. I mean, it's the same, the same. I guess the parallel is that University of Florida, when I walked out of the football team, there were about a hundred dudes there who made it clear to me that you're never going to make it here, but you, this is not your future. I didn't have that obstacle as, as a starting lawyer. It's like, had there been a row of a hundred big lawyers saying, you can't do this. I don't know. Maybe I would have thought twice about it, but the same sort of you know, naive belief that I could do anything that led me to walk out of Florida, led me to think, yeah, I can do this. Welcome to the Founding Partner Podcast. Join your host, Jonathan Hawkins, as we explore the fascinating stories of successful law firm founders. We'll uncover their beginnings, triumph over challenges, and practice growth. Whether you aspire to launch your own firm, have an entrepreneurial spirit, or are just curious about the legal business, you're in the right place. Let's dive in. All right, I think we're on. Ooh, I think it's hot. I think we're on here. Bruce, glad to okay. have you. You know, when we had breakfast, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I was struck by, you know, sort of your background and, and I thought, you know, I'd love to have you on the podcast. So, so thanks for joining us. Why don't you introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about you and, and your firm. Well, glad to be here. And uh, yeah, I was equally struck by you and your origin story. So glad to have a chance to do this. And of course, you know, having a podcast makes this the perfect floor for it. So yeah, I'm Bruce Hagen. I've been a lawyer here in Atlanta since 1986 and worked for a couple of firms, started my own practice in February of 1992 when I left the second firm I'd worked for and launched my own practice, which was essentially whatever you needed, that's what I did. Over the years, that got kind of fine-tuned and I can go into a lot more detail about that process. But at present here in the end of 2023, we have four lawyers total at our Decatur office. We've got a staff of about 12, so it's about 16 people all told. And we are a personal injury boutique. So it's all that we do is personal injury and, and a variety of it. If there's a way for you to hurt yourself or be hurt by somebody else, I should say, chances are we're going to be willing to uh, take that case with some exceptions. I, I've Never been interested in medical malpractice, and I don't do that. I'm still not interested in it. And there are certain like environmental torts that we don't get involved with. But for people who have been injured through no fault of their own, if I can't handle it, I, I usually know somebody who can, and I'm happy to put you in the hands of the right person for that. So yeah, it's a, it's a tight knit little group. I've, I've got folks who have worked with me for over 20 years. My son is a lawyer in my office. My mom worked in my office for 16 years. I, I told her we had forced retirement or mandatory retirement at age 75, and she worked right through that. And then at age 80, I told her, we really do have mandatory retirement, and it starts today. And, you know, I didn't need her driving on 285 to become a potential plaintiff here in the practice. So, yeah, it's been just a you know kind of a small group family type practice for years, and then you know, it's just, it's just a core group of people who've been together a long time. And I think that provides comfort and assurance to clients and repeat clients. You know, they, I think they appreciate that there's not a tremendous amount of turnover and the same person who helped them 
10 years ago is here to help them again when, when it comes up a second time. So, so you do a lot of different personal injury work, but I know you've got a brand, uh, is it Bike Law? Is that what it is? Yeah. So, so the firm name is Hagen Roscoff, but Bike Law is the branding that we operate under. I do a lot of work on behalf of injured bicyclists. It's not all that we do. Thankfully, it's not even the majority of what we do, but I do a lot of work on behalf of injured bicyclists and uh, got into that just by accident, really. I mean, I've been a cyclist my whole life and enjoyed bicycling my whole life, but never really thought of it as a, as a niche practice area. And then when I moved to Decatur in 2002, I got a, I had extra office space and, and was introduced to a guy named Ken Roscoff. Ken was about 20 years older than me. And he had been doing strictly just bicycle litigation, bicycle work. And, and Ken is a very well-regarded cyclist. He's really well-known in the cycling community. He, I mean, he, at age 83, he just finished first again in the Georgia Senior Games for like three different cycling events. So he's never stopped. But, but he kind of introduced me to this idea that, you know, representing injured cyclists can be a practice area too, where you're actually... Know, giving back to a group that you're part of, but also, you know, it's there's a real need there. And so we started collaborating on his cases, which eventually led to us just taking over his cases. And he was very happy to just kind of be, be a rainmaker for some bike cases and let us do the work. So I was tutored and learned really, you know, from somebody who had committed to that. I'll tell you, years later, I was introduced. I, I will say this real quick, you know, driving around Atlanta. And the bicyclists that are out there, I mean, it's usually Sunday morning, so there's not that much traffic, but, but you know, especially Decatur too, there's a lot of bicyclists. I would be scared to get on the roads at Atlanta. So I, I'm guessing you've got, you know, unfortunately a pretty big pool of potential clients here in Atlanta at yeah. least. Yeah, we do. And you know, it's, it's unfortunate because I enjoy riding so much myself and I, and I spend a tremendous amount of time doing advocacy work, trying to just you know, help make the world a safer place to ride bikes. What I was getting at was through, through Ken and then some other just coincidences. And, and really, there have been so many unexpected um, turns and, and things that have happened over the course of a 37-year legal career. Uh, and, and getting the bike lock, getting connected to the bike lock thing is just one of those. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, having nothing to do with this, I know you, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but I got involved with um, the NFL concussion litigation very early on in that process. That led me to, for the first time, get involved with the National Trial Lawyers Bar through American Association for Justice, AAJ. So I went to an AAJ convention really to participate in. I was speaking there about the NFL concussion litigation. At that event, there was a meeting of some group for bicycle litigation group, right? And, and so... Well, this sounds like it's right up my alley. I go, I go to the bicycle litigation meeting and there's probably 25 or 30 people there. And I meet this lawyer. We just start talking and strike up a friendship. And she was, she was part of the Bike Law National Network. And she's telling me about it. She says, I think you'd be perfect for it because really it's, it's a national group of lawyers. We're in now about 20 states or so who are committed not just to like, we're going to advertise to bicyclists. That's really not at all what it's about. It's being committed to helping the community in, in whatever it is that's needed. And so when I say advocacy work, beyond just representing injured cyclists, you know, I'm training police officers on bike law. I train and speak to cycling groups on things they can do to protect themselves. 
I work with several different advocacy groups and their legislative outreach committees to work on passing legislation to make the world a safer place for cycling. I've spoken several times down at the state legislature. I've spoken to City Doherty, council people on the mayor, Brookhaven, Shambly, Decatur, all about trying to do things to help make their lives better. And then I've gotten involved in a lot of grassroots advocacy efforts through this as well. So this chance meeting at an AAJ convention that I went to having nothing to do with bicycles, you know, kind of led me to join this bike lawn network, um, which I've been a part of now for over 10 years. And it's, and it's just been such a great affiliation because we all share information. We're all going through similar, um, similar hardships represented our clients in, in the various states that we're in. And it's all very similar, even though different states have different attitudes. One attitude that is the same, everybody who drives a car hates everybody who rides a bicycle. And, and we're trying to sort of help with that. And, and, you know, I encourage how we're cyclists and cycling friends that to be ambassadors, you know, every single time they're on the bike, you gotta be an ambassador for the entire bike community. The driver that you piss off today is your future juror on a case, you know, when we finally do take one of these cases to trial, you know, who do you think shows up for jury duty? It's not 12 cyclists that sit there and uh, evaluate your case, but everybody's a driver and every driver has had an experience of being pissed off about something than the cyclist has done. So changing attitudes is a big part of this outreach effort as well. All right. So, you know, I want to, I want to get into a lot of the twists and turns and the fortuitous events, but let's, let's go back. Let's go back a little bit. So why, why did you become a lawyer? There are similar themes I hear over the years, but you know, everyone's a little bit different. How about you? How did you get into the law? Yeah, I, I became a lawyer for the simple reason that as a five, nine and three quarter, 168 pound undersized football player, my, my aspirations of being a pro football player were not going to work out. Discovered that quite abruptly when I walked on to the football team at the University of Florida in 1979, thinking I was just going to make the team there and become a player. And, you know, realized that, okay, this is probably not a good career path for me. So I, I stuck with it for the, for one entire season and then realized like, okay, I'm going to have to do something else. My dad was a criminal lawyer in the Bronx where I grew up and he had a very non-traditional practice in the sense that he didn't go, he didn't have much of an office to speak of. He, he, I don't think he ever had anybody type out a pleading for him. I think he did everything by hand, but he was a real courtroom lawyer. And so. My, my childhood was a series of cross-examinations and logic games and, you know, Sherlock Holmes type of deductive reasoning drills. So I, I you know, at the end of the day, when it, when it came time to, to figure out what I was going to do, I really think I uh, programmed my entire life to be a lawyer. So, you know, for about sophomore, junior year in college, I figured that's what I wanted to do. My political science major really didn't qualify me to do much else but go to law school. So I did that and, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I first started. I, I like a lot of folks, you see what your parents do and you try to say, well, I'm going to do something different, right? So, so my dad was a lawyer. He was a real street lawyer and he was in court every day and meet his clients, uh, you know, at restaurants and uh, diners and things like this get paid in cash. I would see, you know, come home with a little cash in his pocket. It's like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I, I want to be more like a ivory tower type of lawyer, get a job at a respectable firm and do things the right way, you know? And so I thought this was my path. I tried to interview with all the top firms 
all over the country, really. I went to George Washington Law School, which was a national school, and had interviews all over the country. But after doing that for several years and being part of a firm, I really came to realize that what I wanted most was just to help people 101 and, and individually. And it's like, I hated the law firm life. I hated the billable hours requirements and the nonsense you went through and the layers of stuff you had to deal with. I never had a problem making individuals happy and doing good work for them, but I couldn't fit within the structures of you know real law firm life. I don't know how anybody does it, to tell you the truth, but it works for a lot of people. I know it does. So after trying to you know be this square peg in a round hole and it just didn't work out at the first firm I went to, I had been doing just construction litigation at that firm, went to another firm. I, I should have got out on my own then, but I just... I had a brand new child. I wasn't quite ready. Went to another firm where uh, our immediate dislike for each other was, was uh, reciprocal. You know, I mean, I, I hated them as much as they hated me. Uh, it just never worked a bit. And so in, uh, after 18 months of, of suffering through that, opened up my own practice. I was, I was ready for it in the sense that I had managed to save up $300 to, to send aside as a safety that so I had some cushion. I, I had a computer that I didn't even know how to use. I mean, this was 92. It was really before uh, desktops had exploded and every lawyer could do everything. So I, I had to teach myself how to type. I had a, a floppy disk. Maybe this beacon teaches typing. So I taught myself how to type. Um, I had a secretary at that firm who was kind to me uh, and spent a few hours kind of showing me how to generate a document how to save a document, how, how to use WordPerfect to, to do things. WordPerfect. Uh, yeah. Old and, school, and then yeah. I, yeah, yeah. And, and then I, I just kind of launched, you know, with, with nothing else there other than this outsized belief in myself that I could do it and a pretty simple goal, which was I needed to make $300 a day somehow. I needed, I needed to, you know, whether it was just on paper or, or collected, I needed to come up with $300 a day, $300 a day, was 1500 a week, was $72,000 a year. That was enough for me to cover all my office expenses, all my home, home life expenses, everything that we needed. If I could make $300 a day, I was set. So, and so, so real quick, so you had $300 basically in the bank. I had enough for one day. I, was, yeah, I, was, so, I had one day cushion. So, I mean, how did you convince your wife, hey, this is a great idea, or, or did you just, you felt like you had no other option? I mean, that, Take me through the thought process. I mean, I guess that job was just that bad for you. Yeah, I guess you're what some people call unemployable. <laughs> I, I've, I've always uh, been, been willing to take on certain types of risk and, and, and I've always bet on myself. I mean, it's the same, the same. I, I guess the parallel is that, you know, at University of Florida, when I walked out of the football team, there were about a hundred dudes there who made it clear to me that you're never going to make it here, but you, this is not your future. I didn't have that obstacle as, as a starting lawyer. It's like, had there been a row of a hundred big lawyers saying, you can't do this. I don't know. Maybe I would have thought twice about it, but the same sort of, you know, naive belief that I could do anything that led me to walk out of Florida, led me to think, yeah, I can do this. I, I have no problem. I'll fly clients. And I wasn't afraid to ask. I'm certainly not afraid to talk to people. So I did everything. I, I mean, literally if it came along, fine, I, I would, did traffic court defense. I, I served as a Fulton County arbitrator. I think they paid 
$100 per case that you would arbitrate down at the county through an ADR program that they had. If you did two cases, you got lunch and parking. So, you know, I would save $12 there uh, between the two. So, you know, that was my, I started, I started taking court appointed criminal cases. I mean, I had never done a criminal case in my life. I took a couple of court appointed cases, landlord, tenant, I was doing dispossessories. I, I, I had, I had a chance to do all kinds of different things. The, the personal injury thing, like my first PI game just really came upon me as an accident because somebody had referred a case to me to, that was a slip and fall from a wedding. And I said, yeah, I can do that. I mean, I didn't even have a contract to sign them up on this for a contingent fee contract. I had to ask somebody to send me something so I could copy it by hand on my work perfect using my Mavis Beacon teaches typing skills to, to write out a, a fee agreement. But I did a, a personal injury case and whatever it was, I remember it settled for $12,000. Looking back, it was probably a $100,000 case. Sell it for $12,000. And, and so I had a $4,000 fee. Now at the time I figured, all right, I'd probably put in, I don't know, 10 hours work on this case. And I made $400 an hour. I was doing work for some friends, like legal research and things for them for $20 an hour, $25 an hour. And, and so not being a business major, it took a minute for that all to click, but I did, I did eventually figure out, it's like, hang on, if I can get more of that work and less of this work, I could probably do better for my family and do this and, and not have to go through the fight of, you know, people sitting there in your office who need help, but don't have money and, and getting paid right up front. My dad, I remember when I, when I launched my firm, my dad was very supportive in every way imaginable, except financially. I, I told him that, you know, listen, I've got to do this and I, and I think it'll work, but you know, I don't know if I'm going to have enough to make my next mortgage payment. You know, can you, give me any help. And so the help he gave me was, he said, go out and buy a lottery ticket, hope for the best. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I, every, in every imaginable way he was supportive except financially, but he did give me good advice. He said, you know, what people are sitting in your office with tears in their eyes, telling you why they, they need help and they can't afford to pay you. He says, that's when you got to get your money. He said, you can't work for free. You've got to get your money. So I was bad at that. I, I, I not as, I, I think I'd be, better at it now. Maybe, you know, the, the humanity has been beaten out of me like it is with a lot of lawyers. But at the time, it was really hard for me to hear somebody's story about how things were going so bad for them. And then say, yeah, I'm happy to help you. Just give me this money so I can get started and I'm, I'm ready to go. But my wife was great because we had an 18-month-old baby at the time. And she put a picture of the child with her framed and said for me to keep on my desk. So when I was having these conversations with folks, I could remember why I was doing this. That, you know, that's, I that. that's a good I idea. Have a to that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. You're not, you're doing it. It, it. it certainly helps with perspective. Yeah. I've had that conversation with other lawyers and, and, you know, I'm not sure I've ever had it with a client, but you know, you know, they're taking from your family basically is, is the mindset you got to have in that situation. Cause otherwise you get, you know, I tell people this too. I've done a lot of pro bono work in my career and it wasn't on purpose, you know. It doesn't always start out that way. It's good to do it when that's your intention, but um, it doesn't always start out that way. Um, and then when I started doing contingent fee work, you know, it was, it was perfect for me because I'm fine betting on myself. And if I'm dumb enough to take a case where we can't make money on it, then that's, that's on me. That's not the client's fault. That's, that's my fault for, for taking it. So, you know, I encourage everybody, hey, look, 
I'm in the recuse business. If there's something you don't want to do, send it to me and I'll do it. And, and for years, that was the case. I, I knew I was starting to make it a little bit in the law practice when I had to tell clients that, look, I'm sorry, but your case is just too small for me. Um, and I'd be happy to refer you to somebody else who would take this. But I'm the one who always took all these cases from everybody else. I don't know anybody who would take your case. <laughs> so um, I'm not saying there aren't other lawyers out there who do it, but I just don't know any that, that in their right mind would do it. And I've had a, a lot of conversations with young lawyers over the years, you know, younger lawyers. And they're a lot smarter than I was at the time because it's like, no, I have standards. Like, we, we can't, I can't take a case like that. Uh, my attitude was, you know, if you needed help, I was willing to help you. And if I did a decent job and, and you remembered me, hopefully you would tell your friends, you'd tell your family, you'd have another case and things worked out. I mean, just totally by accident, one of the, my, my first six figure case, right? Which, which may not sound like a big deal to a lot of folks, but you know, $100,000 case on a one third contingent fee basis when you were doing, you know, slip and falls and settling them at the time. I mean, you know, even low impact car crashes, which at the time were probably worth in the range of three to $4,000. Here's a hundred thousand dollar case. We had a case for this guy who had minor injuries in a car wreck. There was a $2,500 offer, which we rejected and we, and we filed suit on it because that was my other strategy. Sue on every single case I could sue on. Figuring, let me learn how to be a trial lawyer by trying cases as opposed to reading about it or going to seminars. I'll just try every case I get. And, and for about 10 years, we, I was trying, you know, between 10 and 15 cases a year. So filed suit for this guy. And then I get a call out of the blue from someone who told me that, hey, you represent my husband. I didn't even know the guy was married. You represent my husband. He just died in a car wreck. And I found the papers in his desk saying that you were representing him for this other case. I want you to handle his death case. I said, all right, happy to do that. Let's settle the other case first before uh, this goes much further. And so, you know, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on um, settling cases for dead people, but we still got the $2,500 on, on his deceased case. But I then handled the wrongful death case and got the policy limits for her on that case of $100,000. And it was through nothing other than a willingness to stand by this guy that I, I know everybody else would have walked away from that case and, and either told him to take the 2,500 or just said, I'm sorry, your case is too small. It's not worth filing a lawsuit over. So, um, so I want to go back just a little bit. So you, you had your first PI case, a slip and fall that sort of opened your eyes to it. And then you said, all right, I want to do more of this. So how did you make that transition and how long did that take? And how did you get more cases? And then what did you do with the other cases? You just start really, saying no. Really, yeah, great, great question. And, and again, you know, I mentioned that my, my career has been a series of happy accidents and, and good luck and changes of direction that I never would have anticipated, you know, even a year ahead of time, let alone five years ahead of time. But I had a case uh, that was, I was representing a chiropractor who had worked in another chiropractor's office. And the, and the issue was that the chiropractor that owned the business was not withholding taxes from the contract chiropractor that was working for him. So this guy had a tax liability and, and he thought, hey, look, I was an employee in every respect. This guy should have been withholding, but he wasn't. So contacted that owner of the business. I think it was, I think we filed a lawsuit on it that, you know, you should have been treating this person as an employee. And I learned about the many different factors that go into 
independent contractor versus employee and things the IRS looks at. So we got that case resolved through a negotiation. And the owner of the clinic said to me, hey, I really like the way you handled your business on behalf of that chiropractor. Would you be interested in representing folks who are injured in car wrecks who don't have lawyers? And this was right on the heels of that slip of fall at the wedding. It's like, yes, I'd be very interested in that. Let's so talk so about the it. owner was adverse to you and then he started referring stuff to you? I, we were adverse parties. And yes, yeah, he liked the way I handled uh, myself and, and dealt with him as well as you know, advocated for his former contract worker. So, so that owner then said, well, there's going to be, there's somebody here in my office, come on by. And, and I went by his office and met this person there, brought all my paperwork. I interviewed them. I signed them up, you know, in a treatment room at his office. This then led to multiple other visits like this. And, you know, look, it's tacky as can be to, to be a lawyer, signing folks up in the chiropractor's office. I didn't care. I mean, honestly, I, I just, I wanted to work. I wanted to get work. What's the difference to me if, if I'm doing there or they're coming to my office and doing it? Uh, people need lawyers and they need, they need, what I learned is they need to be locked down right away because it's, it's such a dirty business in a lot of ways that you don't know if, if someone is there that one day and you know, some runner might get to them the next day and, and pull them out of there and bring them to another lawyer. And so, you know, trying to get in there quickly and get it done, great. It, it worked fine. That led to me meeting other doctors and other clinics and, and then word getting out that I, that I was doing personal injury cases and started to get some that were unattached. And, and then I, I, look, I was never willing to take on the business model of being a big spender on advertising. I, I, I don't understand it. And, and I, to this day, I couldn't do it. But, you know, the guys who were all over billboards and TV, they, they spend a fortune and they make a fortune. So it's, it's great for them, but I was never willing to do that. So it was always very much grassroots, boots on the ground kind of marketing. But, you know, somehow, like I met these folks who were Somalian living in Clarkston. And next thing you know, I've got an ad written in Somali in the local Clarkston newspaper. And I'm getting Somalian clients. I, I had my first ad in the phone book and then there was a, a Black Business Pages and I put my ad in the black business pages. And I remember talking to the publisher. I was like, you understand that I'm not a black man, right? He goes, that's okay. As long as your money's green. And, and, and so I had an ad in the black business pages and I did get one client out of it. It was the publisher of the black business pages. who got the bad car right. And he hired me. I told him I've never seen anybody work quite so hard to keep a customer satisfied. <laughs> I advertised in the gay yellow pages. And, and, you know, again, having this conversation, I am not a gay man. And, and so it's like, that's okay, because as long as you are willing to help our community, then you're, you're an ally, you're part of it. Unfortunately, that publisher would not let me run the ad that I really wanted to run because she thought it might be a little distasteful. But the ad I wanted to run was to go on the back cover of the gay yellow pages that say, you know, Bruce Hagen, personal injury law, because being rear-ended is not always a good thing. And at... She thought, you know, that's funny and some people might get it, but there's going to be about 10% of our community who's really going to be angry about that and they're going to make your life miserable. <laughs> I just thought, all right, well, that's fine. I, at the time, I know um, was Jay Leno was on The Tonight Show and he used to like hold up funny ads and things like that. This will get me on The Tonight Show. <laughs> but alas, it was not well, meant to you be. You were willing to take the risk. You just needed somebody to, to let you do it. I was willing to put myself in a spaghetti strap tank top and you know, be in the ad myself. Just like I did ask the, I didn't do this either. 
this is going to sound horrible uh, to anybody who listens to this podcast, but I remember talking to the uh, publisher of the Black Yellow Pages and, and, you know, he knew I was Jewish and he says, you know, look, our, the people who, who are our, our customers who use our directory, they love Jewish lawyers. They just said, they love it. I said, well, you think it'd be okay if I put on like a talus and a yarmulke for, for the ad? I mean, that, and, and, and I could dress up like a bar mitzvah boy, like I'm reading from the Talmud or something. And, and he, he loved it. I said, no, I, I can't do that. Like even I had boundaries, but so, so I didn't do that either. But I felt terrible for even having the thought. So, so you, you've been in you know, PI ever since. I know you mentioned earlier you got involved with NFL concussion cases. Tell me how you got involved with those. Yeah, so, so the PI stuff, I mean, gradually I did just say no to, to the work that I didn't want to do. I had a few kind of albatross hourly cases hanging around my neck that were not going to go away and had to get tried. And so got those tried and then, and then kind of stayed away from everything else. And so as I was doing more personal injury and, and you know, look, my, my attitude again was I'm not going to be spending money on advertising, so I need to be my own marketing team. And everybody that I know, everybody who meets me really needs to know this is what I do for a living. And so one of my buddies who I knew from playing basketball, he was an emerging on an emerging radio station that was a sports talk radio station. And so I started going on the sports talk radio station and became sort of a small partner with their radio station, running, running a few ads there, but also appearing on the radio to talk about legal issues in sports and that, and that sort of thing, and, and pop culture, whatever, whatever came up. Through that, I was introduced to a guy who was a former NFL football player that was one of the radio hosts on, on their station. And so he became kind of my, my sponsor on the station. He, he became the voice of my ads and was a big promoter for me, and I was on his show, and, and his show exploded. Well, a few years later, 2011, let's say, he gets contacted by some lawyer out in California. Lawyers aren't supposed to solicit for business like that, right? But he gets contacted by some lawyer in California about a potential claim against the NFL. And so he asked me about it. Like, hey, what do you think? Is this real or not? And again, having this uh, outside belief in myself that's, that was not based on any real technical ability, but you know, sometimes uh, you can do more with balls than brains. I look at it, I research who this lawyer is. He's legitimate. He's a big time mass tort class action type of lawyer out of California. And I said, look, I think this is, this is real. It seems to be, but there's no reason for you to hire this guy that you don't know who contacted you at Lou. We can do this right here. We don't, we don't need him to do this. Let's see if we can do this. And by the way, with your platform, his platform on sports talk radio, his status as a former NFL player and all the retired athletes that live here in Atlanta once their career is over, I'm sure there's a ton of folks that we can reach here. So I remembered a friend of mine who I knew through the Atlanta Bar Association flag football league that I played in for years. And then years later, again, another happy accident. He was sort of trolling, looking for potential claimants to bring a case against auto insurance companies. And I spent two straight days scrolling by hand through every single case I never handled to find him a couple of plaintiffs with those cases. Well, he was also quarterback at uh, Wake Forest and, and had played college football and knew a lot of guys in the NFL. And so I went to him and said, hey, what do you think about this as a potential case we can collaborate on? I can get us clients. He was excited. We, we put on an event and, and 
had no idea if anybody was going to show up. About 50 players turned out showing up at this event. On the spot, we signed up about 30 of them. And, and next thing you know, we're knee deep in the NFL concussion litigation. And so we were the first to file in the state court action, which we filed. Well, let me think. No, I'm sorry. State court was filed in California. We, we were the first to file in uh, federal court. There was another one in Philadelphia. The cases ended up getting consolidated. But because we were involved so early, we got on the leadership team. We were involved in all the initial meetings where the leadership committees were being formed. I got to do some committee work for that, which was so fun because it's, it felt like you were just kind of on the inside uh, of this. That, that led to us eventually um, representing about 500 former players in the litigation. And it was a thrill for me. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned I thought I'd be a pro football player. Well, here I am like on the phone and meeting guys that, that I idolized growing up. <laughs> People, you know, players that I had watched play, I, I was a fan of, I, I was just emulated, you know, as, as my, I wore their numbers, you know. And then guys I knew from that, my brief experience in college, I knew who they were because they were these studs that went on to play in the NFL. They didn't know who I was. I was a tackling dummy. But, you know, we had this bond that we could talk about. And so it was a, a real thrill to be involved with it. That case is still going on, by the way. Yeah, I was um, going to ask, is, has, it, yeah. has it resolved in any sort of way or, or oh, yeah. partially resolved? Yeah. Or, and when, when will it, it end? When will it, it, it was really a, a lesson and again, another practice area that I don't want to get into, which is the mass tort world. But the, the lead counsel sort of took control of everything to the exclusion of everybody else around him and, and worked out a backdoor settlement with the lead, you know, kind of over the course of a mediation that took place for several weeks. And it was like a middle of the night thing and nobody knew what was going on. But the settlement of the case took about two and a half years to get approved. Uh, and it set out a payment structure uh, that essentially said, hey, look, it, it, if you have any of these specified conditions, about six different conditions, then you can be entitled to payment. You don't have to prove causation of injury, meaning you don't have to show that, let's say, Parkinson's disease was caused by playing football. You just have to show that you had a correct diagnosis, what they call qualified diagnosis. Uh, and then we're going to look at that and say, that, all right, for each disease, each, each thing, we're going to set a maximum amount of money you can get. If you have played five years or more, and if you're diagnosed prior to age 45, you get the full payment for whatever that condition might be. The biggest one was Lou Gehrig's disease. That, that was the $5 million payout. Um, if, you, if you had ALS and you played at least five years and you were diagnosed prior to age 45, there was a $5 million payout for you. But then for all these things, for every year, that you are above age 45 when you get your first diagnosis, they're going to reduce the payout slightly. And for every year less than five full years that you played, they're going to reduce the payout slowly. So they created this grid. So somebody who has played five years and is diagnosed at age 45 and develops Alzheimer's, they're going to get a large payout. Somebody who's 75 years old and played one year in the league, they're going to, they'll get something, but it's not going to be much. And, and it's in lieu of having established causation, they set this up. And here's the real kicker. This settlement is to remain in place for 65 years from Whoa. the date that this settlement was reached. So guys who were 25 years old when the settlement was reached and, and retired after a three-year NFL career, they may have no symptoms at all. But when they turn 50, if, they, if something happens to them and they develop Parkinson's, they could be eligible for payment at that time. So now we have to like keep up with 
clients for 65 years to say, hey guys, remember who we are when, when your time comes so that we'll be here when you need us to, to help process that claim. So it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing, but, but realistically, the players who've had it worst, they got paid pretty quickly. The players who have lingering issues, you know, it just kind of goes on and on. And, and unfortunately, the way the settlement was reached, um, a lot of the problems that players deal with on a daily basis are just not getting compensated in this settlement. The settlement is very specific what it covers. And so it's, uh, it's not going to cover, let's say there's a, a current player that's... Well, so everybody, you know, in the aftermath of this case heard about CTE, which is the uh, problem that is a disease in your brain that comes from repeated blows to the head. And, and it was exposed initially, if you saw the Will Smith movie, by the efforts of this Dr. Ben Adamalo, who was a doctor of Pittsburgh, and he was um, doing autopsies and, and seeing these anomalies in, in the brains of two former football players and you know, re recognizing that, okay, there's this unique disease that, that is here. Well, that can only be diagnosed on an autopsy. It cannot be diagnosed in life at this point. And the way this settlement was reached, when they finalized it, it said, hey, you had to have been diagnosed with CTE by today, like the day that the settlement became final. And, and so there are players now who might die who have CTE, found out CTE, that they didn't have dementia, they didn't have Alzheimer's, they didn't have Parkinson's, they didn't have ALS. They're not eligible to be paid, even though they had the disease that was the underpinning of the entire litigation against the league. That's one of the reasons I think the league was so quick to settle is because they realized that, hey, you know what? Everybody's going to have this. Every one of these players is going to have CTE. And it's only a matter of time before there becomes a test to determine the presence of CTE while somebody's still alive. So the NFL reached kind of a quick settlement. I mean, look, it, it's a win for the players in some respects, certainly the guys who have been paid. I mean, the NFL has paid out more than a billion dollars on this. That case alone certainly has changed sports at every level. I mean, youth sports, you know, seven-year-olds are taking baseline tests to, to, you know, observe their brain function and capabilities so that if they get a head injury, we have a baseline to compare it to. There are trainers, their you know, parents are more aware of the situation. Coaches are more aware. It may weaken the product on uh, Sundays when you watch an NFL game and nobody can tackle anymore and somebody gets hit in the head and suddenly there's a penalty and ejection. And, you know, I apologize that that's the net result of this, but it's making the world a safer place for the athletes that compete in sports. And ultimately, we should be concerned with that. Yeah. At the law firm GC, our team of experienced attorneys provides knowledgeable legal counsel for businesses of all sizes. Founded by Jonathan Hawkins, our firm specializes in corporate law, real estate, litigation, and more. To learn how we can become your trusted legal advisors, visit www.yourlawfirmgc.com and schedule a free consultation today. The Law Firm GC. Law done right. So, you know, you talked a lot about sort of the fortuitous events that have sort of led to opportunities in your career. So, you know, this... NFL concussion, uh, I guess you would trace it back, at least part of it, back to your participation in that radio show, among other things. Anything else, you know, that, do you still do the radio show? Is that something you still do, or? That station disbanded, but I'm now on 680 The Fan. I, I go on with Chuck and Chernoff. Probably every other week, we have like a running, running gad where I come on wanting to do my sports opinions, and they always 
seem to lose the connection on our call right before they get to ask me my opinions on, you know, what do I think about the upcoming college football playoff or whatever it might be. But yeah, I still do it. I still enjoy it. And through that station, I've been doing my own podcast called Your Day in Court with my buddy Ray Judice, who's a criminal lawyer and also has been advertising on the station for a long time. And we probably produced about 150 episodes of that show, uh, just covering general legal topics. And it's usually one of two things. Either there's a story that was in the news that week that, that caught everybody's attention. So we'll talk about that or the kind of evergreen legal issues. Like, what do I do if I get pulled over? What, what do I do at a roadblock? What kind of liability do I have if I host a party in my house over the holidays? You know, just what, what sort of insurance do I need on my car? The, the, the kind of things that people always need to hear. So it's kind of a combination of the two. So, you know, I'm sure you get this question a lot. I do from younger lawyers that they ask, yeah, how do I develop business? You know, some of the tried and true is just meet a lot of people. Some people advertise. You've done a lot of things, including this radio show, which not everybody gets the opportunity to do that. Have you seen any, you know, actual other than NFL stuff, you know, clients that you could sort of trace to your exposure or your relationships you develop from doing the show, or is it really just oh, sort of yeah. a fun, fun thing for you? It, it, it's both. a fun thing. It, it's, it's more of a fun thing than it is a profit deal. Like again, not having gone to business school, I think if I had, and, and we're better at looking at things like return on investment, uh, I would look at this and realize, okay, the, the direct pipeline of cases that come through the efforts that I do and the money I spend with radio doesn't match up. But it is uh, a matter of branding. It is a matter of familiarity. Pe people may not call me, but they know who I am uh, sometimes, you know, if they listen to sports talk radio. And so it gives me a little bit of credibility. And I certainly have gotten enough calls over the years to justify continuing it. What I've seen, though, is a lot of firms that will come on the radio and they'll come on for a short campaign or three months or six months, and then they give it up. And uh, I understand why, because it's not this direct pipeline. Like, you know, if, if I if I wanted to really turn my efforts to internet marketing, you know, you can you can quite easily figure out what the acquisition cost is for every single case you have. You know, I, I spend this much money, I get this much, I get this many contacts, we retain this many clients from that, and I can figure it out that, you know, it costs me this much for every contact that comes through and this much for every retained case we get. And have a pretty good idea, and and say, all right, if it's if I'm if it's costing me twenty five hundred dollars to retain a case, and I make seventy five hundred on that case, maybe it's worthwhile, right? That doesn't work with at least my type of radio advertising. That's really not what I'm trying to do either. So, you know, with young lawyers, it, it's it's a difficult situation. I will say that you know, social media has made it really easy to create an impression about your abilities without actually having the abilities there in the first place. I mean, there, there are some lawyers, and one in particular, who, you know, you would think this guy is the greatest lawyer in the world. And I'm telling you, he's, he's not, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. I hear, I hear the advice that he gives out. And it's like, this is so wrong. This is just bad. But his presentation is great. His marketing of himself is shameless and great. And he's got an enormous following, you know? Uh, and so what is a 25 year old uh, who's in a car wreck going to do, are they going to go to the person they see on TikTok all the time that does, you know, silly things? They don't know the quality of that, or they just know who it is. Or are they going to go to somebody who has tried 200 plus cases, who has the respect of every single judge and adjuster in town, 
And any mediator who sees everybody would tell you, yeah, that's a great lawyer, but doesn't have the slick TikTok ads and, and isn't on Instagram and uh, whatever is next, you know? So, so it's, it's a weird time where you can create this perception about yourself based on fumes and no one's going to know. And, and, and that will bring you money, right? And eventually, you, get, you know, that it becomes a reality. Oh, you must be a good lawyer. Look what he's doing. The other way to do it is to spend a fortune on TV. And, and you know, look, there are all these banks out there willing to loan money to support ad campaigns. Like I said, I've, I've, I'm willing to take a chance on myself. I've never been willing to go into massive debt to pursue work. I have done everything I've done without borrowing a dime to, to finance my practice. The exception being I did get a line of credit. Once I, I probably should have had an associate attorney about three years before I did. Same thing with paralegal, legal assistant. I should have had staff, right? And, and I was always afraid of partly it's because I just didn't want to have to take on the responsibility of, you know, somebody else getting paid every two weeks and knowing that I had, to, I had to keep them fed too, in addition to myself. So I delayed it longer than I should have. But, you know, even there, so I eventually got a line of credit for the sole reason of if we are in a lull and, and hit a low spot, I'm fine if I don't eat, but I got to make sure that the people who work for me are eating. And, and so I had a line of credit set up for that reason. And I think I've used it twice. You know, the hiring question, that, that is something that a lot of, you know, lawyers who start firms, it's a huge decision. Sounds like it was for you too. And it took you three, four years to do it. You know, once you did it, did it open up a whole new world or, is, you know, you said you wish you had done it earlier. Any advice to others out there that may be on the fence? Well, hiring. absolutely. It was the right thing for me to do. And, I, and it did open things up because I could, I could, A, you know, focus on the work more. I could focus on developing relationships and contacts. I didn't have to be there to answer the phone and return every call and do everything myself. And, you know, automation has, has made it a lot easier for people to be in multiple places at once, right? It wasn't that way in 1992. I wasn't in the office, I wasn't in the office, you know, that's just all it came to. And, and there was no cell phone to reach me at. So, you know, I, if, if I left on a Friday and came in on a Monday, there were voicemails where we, it's like someone had to take down that message, someone had to return that call, and that someone was always me. And if I was going to court, because like you said, we were trying a lot of cases, days would go by when I wouldn't even get the messages that people had called, you know? And so it was not a good way to practice. But, you know, yeah, I, I think it's important but I know we live in an ego-driven world and perceptions you know, create a reality for you. But the car you drive is not that big a deal when you're starting out. The, the quality of your office furniture and the, the, you know, everybody wants to be Harvey on suits and, and look so slick. You need to really focus on where you're spending your money. And, and, and if you have expensive habits, it's going to catch up with you. There's just not enough work to get started. So, you know, Keep it modest. Keep the overhead down. Don't try to live the life that you think somebody else is living because you see them on Instagram looking so beautiful and, and, and killing it, right? You got to focus on yourself and your priorities first and some keep your costs down. You'll get to a point where people know who you are and um, you're able to do things. But I mean, I, I did it the old fashioned way. I, I honestly don't know that it works today, but still to this day, our number one source of business is not any of the advertising we do. It's not any of the referrals from doctors. I think that our number one source of business are happy clients who come back to us again or refer people to us. 
Without question. I mean, I, we, we look at the numbers every month and every year, and we see where our business comes from. And it's because we take care of people and we do it one at a time and we, and we value them and let them know that they're valuable and you know, they matter. And I think that it's, it's a slow burn to try to build a practice up that way. And not everybody has the patience or, or consistency to do it, but it pays off eventually. You know, I mean, I, I think everybody in their practice, you know, if you, if you are doing it right, you get to a point where suddenly it's, I don't know if it's critical mass or what, but like the cases find you and, 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 you know, you, you actually don't have to beat the bushes in the same way you started out doing it because it just kind of happens. And, and, you know, the reality is people don't want to, A, take a chance on that and B, I, I think sit back and, and wait for it to happen because they want, they want it today. You know, you know, so. in, in a conversation I have with law lawyers too, is, you know, I, I tell people, if you want to increase the value of your firm, build assets. What, what are you talking about? What assets? What do you mean? It's just me. And I said, well, one asset is your former client list. And just because you have a long list doesn't necessarily mean it's a valuable asset. You've got to figure out a way to work the list, stay in touch with your client, former clients, let them know you're still there, you know, send them birthday cards, whatever you do. But the folks that, you know, you, you are another person that has told me that they've had success that way. I've heard of others too, where, you know, they're basically the, the large percentage of their firm revenue comes from the list, their former client list. And I assume you have a way to stay in touch with them. I've had this conversation with some folks and it's happened to me personally where a, a client called me, this is more of a business matter, where they called me about some flare up of some dispute. And I said, yeah, you know, a few years ago, we used some other lawyer. And I said, why didn't you go back to that lawyer? They said, I don't remember who it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's a real problem. And, and we don't do as good a job of it as some folks do, you know, I'll, I'll see people that do these periodic bursts of activity through social media or an email newsletter or something like that. It's like, wait a second, I got three things in the last two weeks from you and, and I haven't heard anything for a year. You know, it's all of a sudden somebody reminds me, you know, I have to, you have to do this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's send out the email. Let's do this. And, and, it, and it needs to be, I think, consistent to stay on top, top of people's minds so that when they have something come up again, they, they know who you are. I will tell you that since COVID, it really has changed things in our practice. Some of them are better and a lot are worse, but, but so I always believe clients wanted to meet me and I, and I wanted to meet every client we had. And so if somebody called with a new car wreck case, or we got a call from a doctor's office, Hey, we've got a potential referral for you. It's like, that's great. Let's set up a time to meet with them. I had gotten to the point where I wasn't chasing people down to the chiropractor's office quite so often. I'll still go to Grady. Uh, but I wasn't going to, uh, you know, the chiropractor's office uh, so often. So, I, you know, we tell our staff, hey, set up an appointment with so-and-so to come on in here and meet me. And it might be a week. It might be two weeks sometimes before they come in. But I always like that, okay, we sat down. We spent 30 minutes together. I know you. I evaluate you. You evaluate me. We, we can establish a little bit of a bond. The main reason I did this is twofold. Number one, I told you I, I was trying every case for a period of time. Well, in that first meeting, I can tell, like, is this somebody who I cannot take to court? Like, this is not somebody that we're going to be able to try their case because put them in court and, and the case goes down the crapper immediately. So I, I wanted to make that assessment. But the second part of it is, what am I going to do to stand out from these other guys? How, how are you going to remember me? What can I do 
to help you remember me because you're going to have another wreck six months from now, a year from now, five years from now. I need you to, to know who I am and remember me, right? So then COVID changed the world and suddenly remote signups became the norm. Nobody wanted to come to the office. And, and I thought, you know, clients want to meet their lawyers. I couldn't have been more wrong about that. They don't care. They don't distinguish me from you, from anybody they saw on TV, from any billboard they saw or anything they see on the internet. They just, they know they need a lawyer and now they have one, right? And if, and if it was somebody who was recommended to them by a friend or a doctor, or, you know, I'm, I'm part of various different business networks and things like this, if they're referred to me through these sources, fine, but I have no more credibility than the next guy. And the only thing they know about us is, is that, you know, what happens after and then when they get their check. And, and so what have I done to try to make them really remember us? I, I, I think that we're going to be feeling the effect of this in the years to come. It's like, hang on, we've always relied on referrals from clients. Why are these numbers shrinking? Well, we don't have the same bond we once did with our clients. So, you know, we try to make it, we try to be, be aware of this. We try to make them feel special and we ask them to come and we always want people to come in to pick up their checks, if nothing else. And we make a big deal out of it so that they meet everybody here. You know, like these, this is the receptionist you've been speaking with all this time. This is the case manager who's been helping you all the way. This is the demand person who did those negotiations with your health insurance and doctors over reducing your bills. This is the, these are the lawyers who worked on your case. You know, this is this, all of us are here for you. And, and, and hopefully they remember it, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I just think the constant barrage of TV and billboard and internet-based ads is overwhelming. And, and it's a challenge for every, every lawyer who's not doing that to try to find a way to stand out. And, you know, I, I, I know the business consultants who used to say, oh, be sure to send a postcard to your clients on their birthday. It is something, but I just think it's going to take a lot more than that in this market. That's, that's an interesting insight. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So another thing we have not talked about yet is there's a book that you that you write or have written. T tell me about that. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that. Forgot about that completely. I'm the author of uh, a great treatise on car accidents. It's hard to see, but it's, yeah, the Litigating Minor Impact Soft Tissue Cases, published by AEJ Press. Once again, another happy accident, but... I was at a different national convention for trial lawyers, and somehow it came up that I might be interested in this. And the people who handled the publishing side of things said, hey, we're looking for an update author to kind of take over this project because the people who had done it before were moving on to other things. Would I be interested? I said, yeah, that sounds fine. They, they, I just thought, okay, this has got to be a good selling point if I can tell people that I literally wrote the book on handling these sort of cases. And so I now do an annual update, either writing a new chapter or updating old chapters of this three-volume set. Well, and then yes. one day, I got a royalty check. Like, I mean, it was, they, they never mentioned that there would be payment for this, but you know, every so often a royalty check shows up. It's not life-changing, but it is always exciting when it comes. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's just another thing. You know, I mean, I, I think the weight of all these things, you know, Georgia's super lawyers, right? I mean, we... we have this peer-based award, if for lack of a better word, that means nothing in and of itself, but it's just another thing to sort of have there that's a recognition. And yeah, one lawyer might look at that and say, oh, that's just silly. You know, million dollar advocates forum, 
and that's just silly. But I don't know that the clients feel that way. And, you know, they may notice more like the absence of accolades. Like, where's his, where are the badges? This other law firm, I looked at their website, had this, you know, all these awards they got or mentioned all these big verdicts and settlements. How come this guy doesn't have that? So, you know, you, you just never know. And to me, it's all part of like the collective things that you do to try to lift yourself up. And, and so it's, I would have to say from my experience, it's never been just one thing that has led to building out a, a fully formed law firm and, and a practice that I don't have to look day to day of where's the money coming from. I, I feel like I can look a few months ahead now and uh, even beyond that. Um, but it, it was never just one thing. It was always the, the collective effect of, of all the various efforts on it. And I'll give you one more happy accident. I, I had been in several different referral services. You know, this, this is another thing I tell young lawyers. There are a lot of people out there who are happy to take your money. And, and that would promise you various things. We'll get you, you know, first page of every Google search in your zip code. We'll do this. We'll do that. And, and they're happy to put these programs together and take your money. And I've never found one that truly delivered at least not consistently. And I just gotten through being part of one of these lawyer referral services back 15 years ago. Um, and, it, and, and I don't think I got a single case out of it, right? So my phone rings and it's like, hey, this is so-and-so. I'm out here in California and uh, we've got some cases to refer you. I was giving your name and uh, you know, here, here you might be interested. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I'm, and I was so angry. I was, I was really nasty to this guy. I was like, yeah, right. How much do I have to pay you for this? He goes, no, no, I'm serious. I'm a lawyer in California. I have a case to refer to you. And so I said, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And I all but hung up on, well, this then led to, first person, I got a few cases. Okay, sounds good. Made a little money and, and was, you know, had a referral to send back to this guy. But it had been a couple of years since I had heard from him. Well, it turns out that he was sitting on this massive referral network of cases that have, they come from employee assistance plans, primarily being used by Fortune 500 companies and, and companies of that caliber. So big companies that have these employee assistance plans that include some legal services benefit. Well, he was in litigation for those two years over whether he could, could assert his right to have the exclusive referral for every single civil case that came out of these networks nationwide. And the, the litigation turned out in his favor. And it was done. So like, right when I was to the point of, you know, I'm never going to hear from this guy again. He calls me up, says, Hey, I've got great news. The tap is going to open up. Let's meet and, and talk about it. I flew to, to Sacramento the next day. We cemented a partnership. I actually had a partnership agreement with him and I've been the exclusive Georgia lawyer in this program now for about 12 years, 13 years or so. And again, it's not, none of it is life-changing. But you just don't know. And if, if we get one case a month or five cases a month, something comes out of it and it just kind of builds the lift. And, and then, you know, the geometric effect you hope to have is, okay, if you had five cases there and, and now you have empowered five more people to be your advocate out in the community. And from those five, you get one case each, you know, and you have five happy clients. Now you have one, you have five more and they can do the same thing too. And, and that's how, you know, over time it grows by taking care of people one at a time, making them feel like they, they are important and they're valued and being honest with them, ideally doing a great job of getting them a great result. But, you know, I tell people all the time, I can't promise you a great result. I can just promise you this. We're going to be very responsive to you. 
We're going to give you honest advice the whole way through, even if you don't like it. And if everything lines up the way it should, yeah, we'll get you a great result. But I can't tell you if and when that's going to happen. I just know that it happens more than it doesn't because that's how I'm still in business 37 years later. You know, some of the themes as we've talked here the last hour or so, yeah, I guess some of the keys to your success, I'd say, you know, be open to the universe or whatever it sort of throws your way. Be willing to experiment. You know, do things that you like. You know, the the, the sports, the bike lawyer, the, the radio show. You know, have fun with it. And things will sort of take care of themselves. But I think key is you, you got to do a lot of different things. You got to be consistent. I think that's the key. I think so too. That's, and that, that is the key word. And, and the other thing I would say too, is if you can really find community that you're, that you can be part of. I mean, for you, Jonathan, I, th I think the community that you have found is great because, you know, the legal community needs people who understand the legal needs of lawyers and law firms. And, and, and it's a defined community. You're part of the community yourself. It's, it's easy to target the people who are your potential customers and, and get a message to them that, that they can hear and to stay on top of it. That's not to say what you do is easy. I just mean that it's a defined subset of the larger, greater metropolitan land area. If you just say, you know, I want to sell my services to drivers, right? The people who drive cars. That's such a massive thing. How do you do that, right? That, that's like, let's just throw a net out there and hope we get something in there. But if you're, but if you're saying, you know what? I like playing Mahjong. And uh, I'm going to uh, promote Mahjong tournaments and I'm going to do it where I play Mahjong. We create a Mahjong league and I'm going to be the lawyer for the Mahjong community and make sure that the 50 people who show up on a weekly basis for these Mahjong leagues know that this league is supported by law office of whoever, you know, your Mahjong lawyer, whatever it might be. There are communities out there that have needs. And, and I, I learned that through the NFL case. And, and, and here's the thing about it, that, that, it sounds silly, right? The Mahjong League, you know, just, there's just something off the top of my head, but, but those 50 people who show up for Mahjong, they talk, right? And they talk amongst themselves. And so one of them says, you know, my niece had a, a car wreck and I sent them to that lawyer. And he, she said he never returned any calls and he didn't answer her emails and, and things just happened for a year and a half and she never knew what was going on. And then she fired him. Well, guess what? You just squandered a great opportunity compared to, you know, my niece hired that, that lawyer that sponsors our Mahjong League and he did the greatest job for her and was so communicative and answered all, all her calls and uh, responds every email quickly. And, and uh, now suddenly people's ears perk up and say, oh, well, I know someone who just had a crash, right? And so within all these little subsets of the community, there's a kind of fraternity or sorority and a network right there that when you can tap into that, for better or worse, it can, it can help you and it can break you. Like in the football thing, initially it was an enormous help. What happened was that leader of the case I was telling you about essentially screwed things up in a big, big way. And these same people who were talking you up are now like, oh, well, now, you know, now they're not doing it. And so it, it, it just, it can talk you down as well. So when I tell people in, in the bike world that, you know, Yes, they matter to me. Like all my cases matter to me. All my clients matter to me, but that they matter to me more. <laughs> I don't really mean in the sense like we're going to do anything else, but I do mean in the sense that 
I want to make sure that people in this community who do talk and ride together, they talk to each other, they're on social media groups together, that they're as happy as they can be with what we do because I know that they're talking. And again, I want to empower them to be my advocates out there to help bring cases into us that way. So find your community that, you know, ultimately whatever it might be, you may, maybe you are, I don't know, you do show dogs or, or, you know, you're active in youth sports or, or whatever it is, your church, your synagogue, there are ways to reach the people who are around you and for them to rely on you as an authority for the things that they might need. And that's, you know, you could be a divorce lawyer, trust in the States, it doesn't really matter um, what your area is, as long as people look to you as the thought leader in, in their community for that thing, it, you know, everything to me will work out from there. So, you know, uh, I've enjoyed hearing about how your firm has, you know, originated, come about and grown. As you look to the future, you know, what's next? What do you, what do you, what do you see? It just, whatever happens, happens or do you? No, you want, man. I, I honestly don't know. I, I, I look at what's going on with self-driving cars. Uh, as a game changer for a lot of industries, but this one in particular, because, you know, self-driving cars, they don't do meth before they drive. They don't fall asleep behind the wheel. They're not distracted by cell phones. I know that at this point here in December of 2023, they're not fully fleshed out from a safety standpoint, but that will come. Now it will come at the expense of some horror, horrible cases, I'm sure that that will happen. But every time there's you know, a disaster from that, they learn how to try to resolve that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I can really see that 10 years down the road, the number of car wrecks would be drastically reduced, maybe even eliminated by self-driving cars. Uh, so what are we going to do? Got to, got to be nimble, right? Got to, got to think of something else. Got to have some other skill set. I mean, suing the manufacturers of self-driving vehicles uh, for the design flaws, right? Might as well start learning how that works. There's going to be other things out there. And, and I've always put my faith in stupid people to overcome smart cars, but uh, I'm, I'm surprised by the uh, commitment among uh, corporate America to this, to this idea. I mean, when you see how much money Google and Tesla and General Motors are putting into these fully automated vehicles, and you know, you're talking about like fully automated tractor trailers, they're already out there, right? So, so it's, that will change my practice. I don't know. I think that despite any technological advances, divorce will never be automated out of existence. People are always going to need help there. So maybe that's, that's the transition we make at some point. We become, you know, bike law, we become, you know, ruined marriage law or whatever and you know, make that transition there. But we'll see. I, you know, my son is a lawyer, works in my practice. Uh, he's 33 years old. So he's been a lawyer for about eight years. I'm more concerned for what this will look like for him. In 10 years at an old war horse like me who will, you know, hopefully be sipping pina coladas and playing golf and uh, just in, enjoying my quiet time while uh, he solves the problems of the world. Well, Bruce, thank you for, for coming on today. We've been going for a while. I don't want to be respectful of your time, but for those listening, how, how can people find you? And I know you're doing a lot of different things, so plug whatever you want to well, plug. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's easy to find me. The firm website is hagen-law.com. That's H-A-G-E-N-L-A-W.com. So check out our webpage. We've got a ton of great information, useful information. One of the most useful things on there is the um, teenage driver contract 
that we have parents to go through with their kids and you can customize it to your needs. But it's nerve wracking having a 16 year old that's starting to drive. And so this sets out a lot of responsibilities for them as well as for the parents. So uh, Bruce at Hagen-Law.com is my email. I don't typically give this number out, but for listeners of your podcast, I, I trust their discretion. My cell phone number, you can call me 404-202-2233, 404-202-2233. At Peeps Lawyer on Instagram, we've got a Bike Law Georgia page on Facebook. You can also email me, Bruce at BikeLaw.com. That's an easy one to remember. So if you can't find me, it's only because you're just not trying. I mean, there's, there's a million ways to get on. And, and for those in Atlanta, when, when, does, when, do you, when are you on the radio? When can they find you? It, it, it varies week to week, but it's afternoons on 680 in the fan with Chuck and Chernoff. And then we have a, a podcast is aired on the sister station, which is Atlanta's only conservative talk radio station. I don't know how I got on that station, but they, they, they run our show Saturday afternoons at noon. It's like 1067 The Extra. So they'll be, you know, all week long, it's Rush Limbaugh and Hannity and uh, Ben Shapiro. And then on weekends, it's me trying to explain to some of the listeners that there's more to the Constitution than just the Second Amendment. All right. Well, thanks, Bruce. And hopefully folks can uh, reach out and find you. No, thank you, man. I really do appreciate it and enjoy your show. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Founding Partner Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on the latest episodes. You can also connect with Jonathan on LinkedIn and check out the show notes with links to resources mentioned throughout our discussion by visiting www.yourlawfirmgc.com. We'll see you next time for more origin stories and insights from successful law firm founders.